Ross sure. McGibbon, welcome to the podcast, second time. Pete, thanks for having me. It's good to be back for round two. Man, my pleasure. So, what have you been up to in the meantime? I had you on probably, what, a year and a half ago talking about um, what you do. So, tell us a bit about yourself and, and what you've been up to. Uh, well, I guess you could class me as a, a herpetological photographer and any, anyone who doesn't understand that term, it just means uh, It's not medical. It's not it's medical. Not, it's not medical. <laughs> it just means reptiles and amphibians. So, that's what I specialize in. Um, I guess I class myself as a wildlife photographer, but I, I mainly specialize in, in reptiles. So it's my niche. To, to sort of pause you there, does it, it always seem to me like a really stupid term, herpetology, mm-hmm. to mean lizards and frogs or, or amphibians, yep. but it doesn't include birds, which are technically inside of reptilia, right? Reptiles <laughs> and crocodiles as well. I don't know, crocodiles probably count. I guess they're reptiles. They're in there yeah. as well, but birds yeah, are more closely related to, to lizards and snakes than they are. Um, to crocodiles, I think, or it might be the other way around, but um, I, I know it's you, a bit weird. You might be talking about dinosaurs there where, um, you know, there was a big, big sort of, uh, you know, truth bomb dropped on the world uh, some years ago about, um, you know, everyone thought that, you know, reptiles were the closest living um, descendants of dinosaurs, you know, obviously because they look a lot similar and look like they haven't evolved that much. So um, everyone was thinking, you know, Big claim to fame: reptiles are uh, are um, the closest living thing to dinosaurs, and actually, birds are a lot closer. So, well, they are. They're descended from them directly. So, yes, yes. it's pretty crazy, right? You would have had what you know, thousands and thousands of dinosaur species only sixty-five million years ago. Yep. The asteroid hits, and they just go through a massive bottleneck where all these species die. And we literally have a single species that survived and became diversified into birds that are modern birds. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, what have you been up to in the in the meantime? How have you been surviving lockdown and COVID in WA? You probably escaped the brunt of it, right? <laughs> well, yeah, like I, I got away in, since I spoke to you last year, one of the major trips I did was Arizona. Um, so I got over to Arizona photographing rattlesnakes and uh, healer monsters and, you know, which are, you know, one of the, well, there used to be only two venomous lizards and, and one was the Gila monster and it was, it was very famous because of that. And now that with all the research coming out, they're starting to find that, you know, Komodo dragons are venomous and... and I think even, all, all goannas now, technically. Te- technically, that you know, but, you know, they're still arguing what defines venom and, and, and I don't really try and get involved in, you know, in the arguments and the science too much. I just sort of wait for it to, to filter down to us, um, you know, reptile enthusiasts, and then I sort of make my assumptions from there based on, you know, what's actually proven and what's just hearsay, you know, so. So, how was the trip to the US? Was there, was that your first time going to the US? Uh, not first time going to the US, but first time actually going over there to photograph reptiles, which was really cool. And um, I, I was going over with a mate who, who's been to Arizona and to the US to, to photograph probably three times before. So he, he kind of knew it very well. And uh, it was awesome just to get, um, you know, someone familiar with all the spots. And we just got, got out there and went hard for about a week straight and yeah, then went on to Vegas. <laughs> well, I've heard it's crazy over there. I was watching the Joe Rogan podcast and I'm not sure. I think there was an Australian guy. Yeah, it would have been an Australian guy who is getting interviewed and he was like, everyone gives Australia a hard time about the snakes and everything. And he's like, man, I lived there 
and I've seen two in my life. And then he's like, but the moment I step off the plane in America and I go to Arizona, I've seen 33 rattlesnakes in the period of two weeks. And he's just like, this place is screwed up. There's more snakes than you can shake a stick at. And you guys are terrified of Australia. So how was it trying to find rattlesnakes? Oh, it was actually super hot when we went. So um, the perfect times for us were like early morning, late afternoon, and then at night time. So... Fortunately, through the warmer months, uh, you know, their, their snakes are more active, but they're more active at night, which, um, you know, not a lot of people are out and about walking around the Arizona desert at night. Um, but we <laughs> were. you're breaking bad, um, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Making blue meth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing something uh, sketchy. So, uh, yeah, mate, it was it was amazing. We, we really cleaned up over there. You know, a lot of the species list that we were after we found and um, I wrote a really cool article about it, which has um, just been released in the um, Australian Herpetological um, Society's publication called the Red Belly Courier. I don't know if, uh, you know, a lot of your audience probably wouldn't know that publication, but it's an, it's an annual thing that, the you know, the reptile community gets behind every year and, and it's kind of like what everyone's been doing and it's full of great articles. So I'll give that a little bit of a plug if there's anyone out there into um, reptiles, uh, look up that uh, publication. Well, you've nailed it, right? You've, with your photography skills um, becoming more and more, I think renowned in Australia, at least with herpetological um, species, you, you've been on quite a few magazine front covers and book front covers, you know, you've been really crushing it recently, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, a lot of publications likes to use me for free photos. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We can talk more Guilty. about that later on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it is one of those things that I'm I'm glad I have a day job as a firefighter because I'm I'm you know I it's not really something you can make a living out of um, just because it is such a specialised and such a niche market, but. Uh, you know, it's always humbling to me when anyone buys a print or, you know, wants to see my work in a magazine or, or something like that. So a lot of it I just do for free and, and just get it out there, you know. They are incredible shots, though. I mean, you guys hopefully have seen Ross's work from the last podcast that we did and, and hopefully you went and checked out his website and, and photos and products and everything. But what goes into nailing a photo of a reptile, especially a very venomous reptile that is um, potentially, de- you know, deadly. <laughs> well, first thing you got to do is go out and find it. So I don't, I don't photograph any captive stuff or um, I do a lot of snake catching on the side as well, you know, relocating snakes from people's homes. But I'm a bit of a purist in my photography and it, and it means a lot more to me to go out there and find the animal in the wild and photograph the wild species that I have put so much effort into finding. So, you know, that starts off with researching the animal, figuring out its habits, knowing as much as I can about it, going out to the wild, wherever that is, is in Australia, and then tracking that species down and, and taking a, or hopefully taking a good shot of it before it disappears. Or- it's sort of like bow hunting versus using a rifle, right? You've got to like really go out there, creep up on the animal. It requires a heap of skills rather than just see it point and shoot. you <laughs> Yeah, like usually, you know, snakes and reptiles are so cryptic and, and that's why you were saying before that your mate, you know, only saw two snakes while he was living yeah. here. And, and that's because they, they survive by being hidden and, and secretive. So, you know, I either have to find them at night time where they're crossing a road or something like that by yeah. driving up and down a, a road or I have to get out there on foot. And, you know, unless you really know what you're doing and what you're looking for, um, it's pretty hard to find snakes on foot. But, yeah. 
Well, that's what I was wondering because you always seem to come up with the, uh, you know, you come up with the good stuff when you go on these trips. But do do people seem to appreciate just how many hours of driving or walking or hiking or searching have actually gone into the probably what several minutes that you might have with this, you know, beautiful, really rare to see animal in front of the camera, and you've got to sort of make it all work because we only ever see the final product, right? Exactly. You only, you only ever see my successful hunts where, you know, all, all the unsuccessful photos, you know, they get deleted and they never see social media and, you know, all the times where I've gone for a species and targeted that particular species, then not found it, you guys don't get to see. So, <laughs> yeah, you, you guys just get to see the good stuff. So, I, I try and keep that coming and... and Seems like a 100% hit rate, right? It's like, oh, Ross went out again and nailed it and you're just like, yeah, that was actually the 10th trip this week or you know, <laughs> to try and find this snake. Exactly. Like uh, only earlier this year, I found a desert death adder, which is one of our nine species of death adder in Australia. And it was the last one I had to find sort of to tick off all of those um, species. But um, yeah, it took me about 13 tries, you know, for for, for whatever reason, like, you know, the times you go to the, the, you know, right habitat and it would be the wrong time of year or it would be just a cold patch of weather where they weren't active or sometimes it would be perfect weather and perfect conditions, perfect habitat, and for some reason they just weren't moving that night. So, um, you know, it was it's pretty soul-destroying when you drive halfway across the country. I think the, the most I drove to, to find it was into Alice Springs and around the West McDonald Ranges yep. and got there and a bushfire had gone through there two weeks prior and just levelled the place and nothing was active and it was just really, really heartbreaking when you look forward to that trip all year and then you, you get there and it's it's the habitat's destroyed or something like that. So. Well, did that take place like whilst you were driving out there or that was like a recent thing that you just obviously had no way of knowing about? Just, just a recent thing that, that went through. It was probably two weeks prior to me getting there. It, it had ripped through there and, and nothing was still burning. So, um, you know, it had, it had sort of finished two weeks before I got there. But, yeah, everything was charcoal. So, you know, everything was probably hiding or underground or, you know, just deciding to bunker down and wait for things to, to get better, you know? Far out. And so what goes into planning a trip like that though? So say that you want to get the, this, this, you know, perfect shot of a death adder. Mm-hmm. How does one go about getting themselves to the end product of being in front of the death, death adder, taking a beautiful shot of it? Like how much is behind the scenes there? Well, some of it, a lot of it is pre-planning and, and knowing what you're going for and, and where you're going and everything. Um, so I've got to do a lot of research, uh, A, about the species, but B, just on Google Maps and locations. So I'm speaking to other people that have found them before and I'm, I'm you know, doing as much research as I can so that when I go out there, I haven't driven, you know, <laughs> my, my average six-week trip, I'll probably do about 16 and a half, 17,000 Ks. That's like halfway around Australia. It's, <laughs> it's the, it's the pretty, circumference of Australia, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty full on. So, um, you know, doing that amount of distance and using all my annual leave for a trip like that, it's a big investment. So, yeah. I need to make sure that when I do um, go out and embark on those trips, I'm going with as much information and as much location details as possible. Uh, and then when I get out there, it's really a matter – you're at the – mercy of the conditions so if the weather swings on you and it gets too cold and you're after a nocturnal species then you know you've got very little chance of finding it if it's a cold night and you're looking for a snake that's active at night you know 
And are you normally targeting multiple ones just to sort of, you know, hedge your bets and hope that, okay, if I miss one, at least, you know, I've got some other ones up my sleeve that hopefully yes. will be there. Yeah, like I'll, I'll go, if I plan a six-week trip, I'll have a list of like 50 species or something that, oh, wow, I'm, okay. that I'm trying to find or, or, or 30 species. And, and basically, you've got your, your main targets at the top and they're what you're basing your trip around. So, yeah. you know, if I need to drive to Darwin for, uh, you know, a really rare species of snake, which I have done in the past, I'll be going for that snake and then everything else for those four days that I'm looking for that species is a bonus, you know. Man, this is starting to sound more and more like uh, the Pokemon video game. Were you into that as a kid? I don't know if I've asked <laughs> you that before. <laughs> no, no, but you're not the first person to make that um, sort of correlation. And, and I've actually been out. I got, I got quite, um, I don't know what the right word to use, not, not offended, but it was just like uh, a really weird experience when I was up in Darwin and I was looking for frill neck lizards in a park and, and some weirdo came up to me and asked me if I was there for, for the Pokemon. Oh, Pokemon Go. Yeah, Pokemon Go. <laughs> You know, where people were actually going <laughs> to, to real locations and then trying to find um, virtual Pokemons. And, and I was like, no, you idiot. I'm actually looking for a real animal mm. um, in the wild. And he, and he was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, cool, man. You know, this is Pokemon going real life, yo. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm like, and then I thought about it and I'm just like, this is what people could be doing with their time. They could actually be yeah. out there looking for real animals, photographing you know, things that are right there in front of them that they would get a way better experience from and here they are doing it virtually on their phone. It's easier. It's, yeah, it's really weird. It's, it was weird to me anyway, man. It was weird. Yeah, I loved it. I always grew up on Pokemon. I was there when it first came out. I was just like, oh, man, I don't know what it was, but I think that the fact that I'd had two parents as biologists, we used to go down to the beach or into the bush and be lifting stuff up, looking for animals and critters and all sorts of stuff, putting them in containers and taking them home. And um, I just loved Pokemon. But I had that sort of realization when I picked up bird photography and I was like, this just feels like I'm playing Pokemon, but I'm not catching them or making them fight, right? Like I'm yeah. literally going out with a specific target, trying to get a good photo. And I'm like, you know, it's, it's like you get home, you go through and you're like, yeah, I got one. I got one. Yeah. There's a lot of similarities, <laughs> but you know, you can do the real thing. So I encourage people to actually take more of an interest in wildlife instead of virtual games. Well, and what are the things that people don't understand about the differences between, say, bird photography or taking photos of their close relatives, snakes? Because I imagine there's a completely different skill set. Well, there's probably a lot of similarities and, and I don't really get too much into bird photography myself. I think that you, I don't know, you can't, <laughs> you've got to have a passion for what you're doing. And, and for me, I'm a hands-on guy and I like to get uh, you know, up close and personal with the stuff that I find. And, and, and bird photography is great in a way that you can go out in the wild, you can really appreciate nature, you can, you can settle into one spot and wait for birds to come yeah, and fly, exactly. fly into your zone. Yeah. And then you can take photos and, and there's no hands-on, there's no interfering with the wildlife, nothing like that. Whereas, you know, for me, you know, I grew up catching snakes and lizards and, and you know, I'm fascinated by them. So I like to get hands-on. So, you know, if there's a, a tiger snake over there, you know, I'll go and catch it and, um, you know, and then I'll photograph it or all the other way around because a lot of people don't really understand that with reptile photography, if you try and take photos of snakes, you're probably just going to get a bit of body in the long grass. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like to actually get a photo of that snake, you've, you've generally got to catch the animal 
and then put it into some short grass so then you can take some photos of it, you know what I mean? Or get it to get it to sort sort of sit there and realise that you're not a threat. Um, and then that's where, you know, snake handling and stuff comes into it. But um, obviously I don't advise the, the general public to do any of that, you know. I'm, I'm a take, take the photos of them in the uh, grass, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, <laughs> from a distance with a, with a bird photography a lens. <laughs> with a bird photography lens, that's, that's how the general public probably needs to, to interact with snakes. But for me, I'm, you know, I'm a professional snake handler. I, I do this, I've done this my, my whole life, you know, I, I do it professionally as well as, um, you know, for my own passion. So if there was no Facebook, if no one ever saw my photos, I'd still do it because I love it, you know. When people probably don't realize you're using a a rather wide lens, wide angle lens. And so the photos appear to be, it should have a little thing of like subject is actually much closer to the camera than may appear (laughs) (laughs) at the bottom, right? (laughs) Yep. All I do, I specialize in wide angle photography. So I'm I'm sometimes inches from the, the animal itself and that takes a certain amount of understanding what you're doing so that you're not putting yourself in harm's way unnecessarily, especially with venomous species. But um, my style of photography is basically wide angle so I can get all the habitat in the background because I really like to tell that story of where the snake comes from as well. So you'll, you'll find that if anyone checks out my photos, you'll get a beautiful landscape photo, you know, photo with basically an animal in it and, and that's the formula I sort of stick with. I think that's one of the things people don't really respect about good photography until they start becoming fo- um, photographers themselves is just that you often have a subject in the photo, but then there'll be all of the broader context, which is sort of really subtle, but without that, it's kind of a, it wouldn't be the same photo, right? And so quite often you have these beautiful photos of say goannas on branches coming towards the camera, but you can also see, you know, the sand and the dunes behind them, the sky, yep. the clouds, everything yep. like that. And you nail the flash. I always see like you have the, the wildlife flash going forward with this, the bright sun and sky usually in the back. So it, it looks like there is so much work that goes into getting those photos. Do you yep. have to worry too much about the... Um, I guess you would say ethics of manipulating or, or sort of holding the animal back from doing its thing when you're posing it or getting it, um, you know, ready for a photo. What are your sort of constraints there? Um, when it comes to ethics, I think as long as you're not affecting the animal's survivability and you're not putting it under too much undue stress. Like if I go and catch a lizard, for that first brief moment, the lizard's going to think, oh, a predator has me, you know. Yep. And there are there are a lot of purists out there that would be like, no, completely hands off. You know, if you if you interfere with the wildlife, um, then you know that's they just lose their mind at the thought of that sort of thing. But yeah. they don't understand that for reptile photography to actually come into the world and for me to educate people about them and show people these animals, most of the time you have to catch the lizard, otherwise it's disappeared. Like. I always try and photograph in situ if I can. Yeah. But it's very rarely a um, – it's very rarely what actually happens out there in the wild. Like if you see a snake in long grass, you've got seconds before it, it, it notices you and disappears, you know what I mean? So if there were no people like me out there doing reptile photography and actually catching and positioning the animal for a photograph, yeah. there would be there would be no reptile photos in a book that you could look at 
and go, oh, you know, that's what that animal looks like. So <laughs> when it's, here's, here's what the animal looks like from behind when it's running away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. So if they, if people want a blurry photo of a, of a lizard disappearing or a, you know, a picture of two inches of snake in long grass where they can't tell what it is, yeah. then that's what happens if you have that purest mindset of I'm not going to interfere with the, with the animal. So it is a trade-off. It's a trade-off. Um, so what you need to do in my position is get very good at learning the animal's behavior, knowing um, how to interact with it, how to handle it gently. Um, and then I find that my subjects calm down very quickly when they realize that I'm actually not there to harm them. They yeah. get over that, you know, if you catch a snake by the tail, it's going to flip out for a bit. And then if you do the right thing and you handle it correctly and gently and slowly and you're moving slowly with the animal, um, they do tend to go, oh, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting eaten, I'm not um, getting attacked by a predator, it's not harming me, and they do calm down. And, and I've had a lot of reptiles get curious at me then. Um, and then I've oh, also really? had a lot just want to keep getting away. So <laughs> Yeah. But I imagine too, if you lower your profile and you're lying down quite a lot for these photos, yes. they're going to feel a lot less threatened because you're not this big ass, you know, Correct. shadow thing in front of them. Correct. So a lot, a lot of people um, don't realize that, you know, reptiles see us as large predators. So when I take my photos, I'm, I'm doing it for two reasons. I'm down on the ground laying on my stomach mostly to get the right perspective because when humans walk around and observe the the world from you know an, a six foot high you know depending on how tall you are um six five foot, five foot nine yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know that perspective you're used yeah. to looking down on small animals so if i just walk up to an animal and i'm standing and i take a photo of a reptile you're gonna see what you would see if you just came across it. And, and that perspective isn't new and it's not different to anyone. Whereas if you get down on their level, you'll see that any if you look at any of my photos, it's like I'm staring right into that animal's, you know, soul from its, from its level. So it would be like if you were another snake coming across a snake and it rears up in front of you, that's what you're going to see when... Well, I, feel, I feel like a lot of them, especially the snakes, like the one over your left shoulder there, the those photos where the snake is kind of sprung up and, and is about, looks like it's about to strike. Yep. I feel like that must be the last thing billions of Australian rodents have ever seen. Yeah, yeah. And it's also <laughs> the last thing any human wants to see in real life as well. So, um, But if I can give them that perspective from a safe point of view, like I get a lot of people on my social media going, um, you know, I'm glad it's you and not me. And secretly I'm going, yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I'd I'd rather be doing this in the wild than than looking at it on social media. But for a lot of people, they don't have that option. So that's always been my thing, man. I'm I'm sort of like, I'll photograph pretty much everything, but fuck snakes and sharks, you know, (laughs) like that's, (laughs) that can be someone else's job. Crocodiles too. Jesus Christ. Like, yeah. Exactly, but then then you get people that are really passionate and they understand the animals like exactly that to a level that the public don't understand. And then I can get so close to these animals because of the knowledge, the intimate knowledge I have about their behaviour. So when you know what you're doing, your fear level and your if you have understanding about the animal, your fear level drops. And a lot of people ask me, "Oh, aren't you terrified or aren't you scared?" And I'm like, "I don't, I don't get scared." when I'm photographing venomous snakes because I know what I'm doing. I understand the animal and there's really a lot less to fear than 
what the general public perceive venomous snakes to be like. And we'll get into that in a bit, but before we switch up gears, 